Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this week's podcast, we're focusing on Germany and the future of the European Union. The German Constitutional Court delivers a savage blow to the EU, and German Chancellor Angela Merkel agrees to one of the biggest steps forward for European unity in decades. Both of those things have happened in the past couple of weeks. My guest this week is Constanze Stelzenmuller, who's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. She's also a regular columnist for the Financial Times. In this episode, we talk about how these contradictory events will shape the future of Europe. All of these tumultuous events in European politics are, of course, taking place against the backdrop of the coronavirus pandemic. The lockdown is gradually lifting in Germany. Football games have restarted. But players are performing their post-game rituals in empty stadiums. This week, too, I received a message from a friend in Berlin inviting me over for a beer. Beer gardens, that quintessential feature of a German summer, are reopening. But there'll be little of that jolly summer atmosphere in the corridors of the European Central Bank in Frankfurt as they struggle to react to a new ruling from the German Constitutional Court. Essentially, the German court ruled that the ECB's bond-buying program is illegal. That ruling has huge implications. It poses a direct threat to the survival of the European single currency because the ECB's bond-buying program was essential to getting Europe through the debt crisis. And the ECB's just renewed the program to deal with the economic fallout of the coronavirus pandemic. The German courts also seem to have struck a blow at a fundamental pillar of the European Union, the principle of the supremacy of European law over domestic law. In her first response to this bombshell, Angela Merkel said she would respect the court ruling. Also erstmal haben wir die Entscheidung des Bundesverfassungsgerichts zu respektieren und das tue ich selbstverständlich auch. But Chancellor Merkel also said the ruling was a reason to deepen European integration and what she had in mind became clearer days later. In a joint appearance with President Emmanuel Macron of France, Mrs. Merkel announced that Germany is now embracing an idea that it's long been resistant to. The plan is that the European Commission should be allowed to borrow on the financial markets and use the money to give grants, not loans, to member states that need them. Der Unterschied ist lediglich, dass wir als Mitgliedstaaten durch Ratifikation auch der nationalen Parlamente Some excited supporters of European unity see this German commitment as a decisive moment, comparable to the pooling and sharing of debt burden that was so crucial in the formation of the United States of America. Germany's finance minister, Olaf Scholz, has even called it Europe's Hamiltonian moment. A reference to Alexander Hamilton, the first US Treasury Secretary who helped found the US financial system and who's newly fashionable because of, well... So was the German court ruling a massive setback for the EU? 
Or is this really Europe's Hamiltonian moment? When I got Constanza Stelzenmuller on the line from Washington, D.C., I started by asking her that very question. I think it's Hamiltonian in the sense that this was a really significant gesture for the German government to make in this moment of exceptional crisis. It's a concession to France in that Germany accepts the need for common European debt. Uh, The Chancellor, of course, made it clear it was doing so exceptionally in a moment of historic crisis. But nonetheless, it's a commitment to doing what it takes. We've already heard that there is skepticism from uh, not just from German newspaper commentators, uh, but also from the Austrian governments. Presumably, we will hear more of that from particularly Eurosceptic Northern and Eastern European governments. But I think as a gesture, as a political gesture, it was what was necessary at this moment. So, uh, I mean, as you say, one of the reasons that it may not be this decisive moment that the passionate believers in the United States of Europe hope for is this broader mood of Euroscepticism in a lot of important countries. I guess one sign of that was this constitutional court ruling in Germany, which was the the talk of uh, Europe or the European Union before that. Why was that, in your view, such a bombshell? The German court ruling was a bombshell because it seemed to assert German and in general European national sovereignty over the institutions of the EU in a a way that no other European national constitutional court had done before. And as such, it seemed to be putting into place a very large roadblock for any further kinds of European integration, fiscal or other. That's, I think, what startled people, what uh, horrified some, and what made it such a big point of discussion. And give us some background, though, because some people say that the German court has been edging up to a sort of confrontation with the European Court of Justice and this question of supremacy of EU law for some years now. I mean, you're an ex-lawyer, I believe. Uh, (laughs) Is that a a pattern you see? You make it sound as though I was an ex-convict. And I'm sure for some people that would be an appropriate uh, way to to think about former lawyers. Yes, I I went to law school a long time ago, and I've uh, since uh, been attempting to redeem myself through journalism and think tank work. But um, it's important to keep in mind that because the European Union is not a federal state, and at this point is not working its way towards being a federal state, the question of the delineation of the powers of European institutions and nation-state institutions is a little bit different than it would be in a classic federal state, let's say the United States of America or Germany, which is also a federal state, unlike Great Britain or France, which are not. So what the German Constitutional Court was doing here was saying, listen, you aren't a state constitutional court. We're hitting the brakes. Now, I think the critics of the the German court ruling now have one very valid point, which is that the language that the German jurists use towards the European Court of Justice was really rather rude. 
it accused the European Court of Justice of having made an ultra vires decision, in other words, beyond its competences, that its decision was arbitrary and schlechterdings nicht nachvollziehbar, which is a really rude way of saying, we have no idea why you even did this. That, I think, was slightly beyond the pale. But they do have an important point to make, I think, and one that ought to be taken seriously beyond the borders of Europe, which is, at its core, the German court judgment was saying, listen, we're in this emergency situation where central banks and courts are making decisions that ought to be made by governments and legislatures. In other words, they were saying, what we really have here is a democracy problem. You lot, you the European Court of Justice, the European Central Bank, are too far removed from democratic legitimation to make on your own decisions of such gravity for the fate of Europe. And now I think my economist friends uh, would respond, and I've I've labelled you as a lawyer. I won't go further and label (laughs) you as an economist, but I will ask you an economic question. (laughs) That would be wrong. Yeah. Um, There are those who say, yeah, well, this is all very fine as a point of politics, a point of law, but guys, we're in the middle of an emergency. We've just emerged out of the debt crisis. There is this threat of uh, an Italian debt crisis in response to the massive recession Italy is going to go through. This is not the moment to risk the euro by taking away the European Central Bank's main artillery piece, which is the ability to buy bonds. Do you take seriously this idea that, uh, deliberately or otherwise, the court decision might trigger another European debt crisis? Uh, No, I don't, because that's not what the court did. What the court is asking, or perhaps more frankly telling the European Central Bank to do, is to make its argument more clearly in economic terms. Now, remember that it said it's not clear to us that the measures that you have undertaken are proportional to the crisis in hand, and you need to put that out more clearly. Now, the critics of the German court decision have said to the German court, have you not looked at the website of the European Central Bank? Have you not looked at the myriad economic documents and briefs that are posted there that lay out the reasoning of the bank and the sources that they use to come to this decision? But the point here is that the court is merely saying to the European Central Bank, listen, put this in writing within the next three months and we're fine. So in a sense, it's, uh, they've left them, as you say, an easy way out. Precisely. It's, it's, it is actually a constructive offer. And I would add an additional point, one which hasn't been made that much, but strikes me as rather important, which is if the German court tells the European Central Bank that it needs to make a better argument for why its decisions are proportional, you could, in theory say that, well, if proportionality is your main worry, the economic damage wrought by this pandemic is much bigger than we thought. And therefore, actions that are proportional are going to have to be even bigger than what we've done in the past. Right. So leaving the economics, though, to one side, I mean, it seems to me that we've had two very big events, Germany at the centre of both of them, pointing in different directions for the European project. You have the German Constitutional Court decision, which, as you put it, is kind of slamming on the brakes. Mm. 
And then you have Merkel pressing down on the accelerator by having this joint press conference with uh, Emmanuel Macron talking about uh, the, the euro bonds. So how do you see the uh, the balance of forces? Are we are we going to about to shoot forward or backwards or have an accident? What's happening? I think there is actually no contradiction between these two events. The German Constitutional Court was really setting up the governments of Europe to take back the reins from the courts and the banks in what is, after all, as the Chancellor and many others have said, the biggest crisis to hit Europe since the end of World War II. I think the real hardcore of the German Constitutional Court's judgment, and one that I think is absolutely appropriate, is to say that if we are to be a European Union governed by democratic rules, by separation and balance of powers, by rule of law, then the decisions about the life and death of the Union and about European nation states ought not to be made by the least democratically legitimized institutions, meaning courts and central banks. Those kinds of decisions ought to be in the hands of governments and legislatures. So what I'm trying to say is that in some ways, the German Constitutional Court's judgment punted over to the government and said, this is your call, not ours. And it was taken up. Okay. And then so to uh, round up, it's been a very big uh, couple of weeks. In the second uh, half of this year, Germany is going to take over the presidency of the European Union. Do you think that we're going to see a strengthened Angela Merkel with a renewed interest in this whole question of European integration? Or is Germany, in fact, turning inwards a bit? That's a really good question and one to which I don't have a one-sentence answer. Let's remind ourselves that before the onset of this crisis, Merkel in her fourth, and she has said, final term, was thought to have become somewhat removed from day-to-day affairs of government and very much in the twilight of her political career. In March, the pandemic hit, And ever since then, Merkel's start, to everybody's surprise, has been in the ascendancy again. She has, I think by the judgment of all, even her opponents, demonstrated firm, calm, and very rational leadership. The succession question has basically been ignored. It's still there. And clearly, she is seeing this pandemic moment and the question of the future of Europe as a legacy issue. And I think that that feeling and her commitment to Europe as somebody who grew up in unfreedom in Eastern Europe is very much in her mind as she proceeds here. Now, there are other factors currently at work which could undermine that or, or in fact, upend such calculations. And that's the fact that currently conspiracy theorists and the hard right in Germany, of which the Alternative for Germany party is a part, but not the whole, are again out on the streets and out in social media in full force, attempting, just like in uh, the course of the refugee crisis, to turn the tide of German opinion against the government, against the chancellor, and against Europe. And 
Part of this protest is visibly anti-Semitic. It's painful for me to say. Part of it is anti-European. Part of it is just anti-rational, frankly. But it's very much there, and it's on the streets in Germany in a way that it's not, I think, in Great Britain or in Spain or in Italy, oddly enough. Um, And I think some of this is absolutely homegrown. Some of this seems orchestrated. We'll see how it goes, but we have seen something like this in the course of the refugee crisis, and that suggests we're not at the end of that development yet. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there for now, but thank you very much indeed, Constanza. It was a great pleasure, Gideon, as always. Thank you very much. That was Constanza Stelzenmuller ending this edition of the Rachman Review. And if you could spare a few moments, we'd love to hear from you about what you think about the show and how it can improve. We're running a survey, which you can find at ft.com slash Rachman survey. You might also like to subscribe to the FT's coronavirus business update, a level-headed expert email briefing on how the pandemic is affecting global markets, business, and the workplace. Visit ft.com slash Rachman review COVID to sign up for free access for 30 days. You'll find us in all the usual podcast apps. 